Hello everyone, I'm Mark, the chief writer here at Maltopia, and I just wanted to remind you the sleep-wake cycle is but one of a series of interconnected horror podcasts within the wide and weird world of Maltopia. For Easter eggs, crossover events, and additional lore, please check out our other series, The Shepherd of Wolves, Red Mother, Grimland, and The Damnation Machine. And be sure to check out our free content on our Patreon page for additional lore and stories. For even more Maltopia content, consider becoming a patron. Starting for as little as $2 a month, benefits range from additional art, update videos, early episode access, our mini-podcast series, October's Children, both written and full audio pieces, such as The Lost Library, Tales of Maltopia, and The Weird Book. You can also gain access to our found footage show, The Weird Tape Series, and even our Patreon-exclusive, fully-produced audio series, Devil's Clay. So, with all that said, I will leave you to the darkness. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss when you're ready to pop the question the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring at blue you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online choose your diamond and setting when you found the one you'll get it delivered right to your door go to blue and use promo code listen to get 50 dollars off your purchase of 500 dollars or more that's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. 
PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Dr. Mercer Bowley, lead investigator of Discovery Team 27, the city of Maros. Background. The city that would become Maros was founded in 1823 by a wealthy family named Crickmeyer. Also the name of the town. Seems they started a rather lucrative mining business, precious stones and metals. After a brief heyday, the mining business ceased to be profitable and the city went into steep decline, subsequently turning to the lake to recuperate its losses, fishing and shipping, that sort of thing. However, the lake proved much less viable a source of revenue, and the town shrank in size for the fact. Census data is scant on this point, but it seems it was almost derelict by the early 1900s. Crickmeyer officially became Marrows in 1913, the effort headed up by a maritime family by the name of Estercliffe, who named the city after the lake. Apart from some old articles about the family's small fishing business, there's little information concerning the Estercliffs prior to their founding of Marrows. Most of the records concerning the newly christened town, as well as its benefactors, were lost after the Great Darkness. Accordingly, I have written ahead to the town historian Marrows, a one Benjamin Renard, for his permission for both an interview and the perusal of his private library, where I might be able to fill in some of the above blanks. July 5th. We arrived at the small harbour town of Leland, which serves Marrows' marketing and banking needs, as well as some creature requirements as well. We were told by a local that a man from Marrows, William Lansmore, practically lives in Leland and operates the boat to and from the city and generally serves as liaison between the two lake towns. Despite numerous attempts, we were unable to locate Mr. Lansmore and were obliged to seek alternative arrangements for transportation across the lake. Upon casual inquiry, I was able to ascertain from our rented boat captain that the city of Maros is not particularly well-liked, and that very few, if any, Lee-landers visit the place. 
The given reason for this concerned the general lack of basic amenities and an air of snobbery that accompanied the presence of Innie Kilroy, the current predominant family in Marrows, according to rumour, who occasionally deigned to visit Leland. The residents of Marrows are also said to be irredeemably cheap and short in almost all of their formal transactions. July 6. I and the rest of the Discovery team landed at Marrows by boat. We were picked up at the dock by our liaison, Edward Cutty. After a brief tour of the city, we were taken straight away to the aforementioned man's home and enjoyed a pleasant, if simple, brunch. The city is small and sequestered, huddled down in the shadow of the tall hills to its immediate east. Most of the homes appear multi-generational and in quite bad shape, though there are a few locations where more modern and rambling structures stand. All in all, a rather poor excuse for a city. July 7. Late evening. I was taken to the home of Benjamin Renard for the prearranged meeting. An aged gentleman, late seventies perhaps. He was mostly friendly, though somewhat reserved. His library was far more extensive than I imagined. Books lined every shelf of the considerable room. Having supplied me with ample coffee and whiskey, Mr. Renard left me alone for much of the evening. The specific collection I was most interested in concerned those journals, local monographs, and snatches of folklore that he'd compiled after the darkness, acquired from the properties of those who went missing. I learned that the city was largely inert until the close of the darkness, having barely subsisted upon its waning industries. Yet, after the disaster, the city saw something of a renaissance, as its fisheries were called upon to feed and supply those townships less fortunate than itself. Merrows also came under the sway of yet another family, the aforementioned Kilroys. Apparently, they, along with their entire estate, simply appeared here all the way from Boland Fells, near Lancashire. Having no feasible means of returning once they came, with all they came with, they decided to remain and lend their considerable business acumen to the local efforts of rebuilding the city around its revived industry. They now feature rather prominently in the hierarchy of things here. The Kilroys were formerly engaged, and rather profitably, in the winery business, or so it's been claimed in the materials I have access to. On that count, you may wish to look further into the matter before coming, as there are no uplink centres here, nor is there anything resembling an intranet. July 7. Interview with Benjamin Renard. Historian of Marrows. Now, you said this is official, right? Mr. Kilroy has been made aware of all this business, these interviews and such. Yes. As I said, my companions and I are from the Department of Reclamation. 
We're here to conduct an examination of the city's attributes to determine if it qualifies for public monies. Monies which would assist in its efforts at rejoining civil society. Notices went out to Mr. Kilroy some time ago, as he was named caretaker of the town. We will be speaking with him shortly. We were told he wouldn't be available until the day after next, so we thought to begin our inquiry with you, the listed town historian. Is there some reason why Mr. Kilroy would object to your speaking with me? No, no. Just don't like speaking on matters I'm not well acquainted with, is all. And running the town is one of them. So, you see, I'm not sure how much help I'll be to you. Well, it just so happens that you can be of great help, Benjamin, as many of my questions concern the history of the city. You see, there are some rather pronounced vagaries within the official record about what happened here following the Great Darkness. Uh, what sort of vagaries? Well, to begin with... There's no mention of the Astacliffs anywhere within the post-noctum census. Records would have us believe that quite a few of them lived in Marrows. Do you have any information on the matter? Well, Galen Astacliff ran quite the business here. Back in the 70s, the place was billed as a tourist location. He had quite a few restaurants, uh, bed and breakfasts, festivals and such. My, my own father was the manager of one of those restaurants, in fact. But then, for whatever reason, business ran dry and people stopped a-coming. Lots of folks left after that, making for the big cities, no doubt. Galen and his family tried turning the focus to the old mines, open them up for tourism. Uh, but that didn't seem to work. Eventually, the place just sort of closed down. Galen and his people sold most of the land and moved away. Weren't nothing left but a ghost town after that. I mean, sure, there were still folks here and about, farming the flat lands just next to the hills, but nothing that still smacked of a real city. Oddly, while the Estic lifts up and left, there uh, always been a few quickbuyers here. They've still got property up in the hills. Big old mansion set right on top of one of them. Almost as old as the rock it sits on. And looks it, too. After Galen left, Dylan Crickmeyer bought back the mines and hired some folks to come in to see if they was really exhausted. Or if there was more minerals to be had. Apparently, they told him what he wanted to hear, and Dylan sunk a fortune into the new equipment but nothing ever came of it. In the end, he closed the mines down and went back to living in the hills. His people have been scarce since the darkness, only coming into town now and then uh, for supplies and whatnot. And tell me, what shape was the city in after the Great Darkness? I couldn't help but notice a peculiar lack of such information within the books and articles of your collection. And I was told by a local gentleman that the state-mandated Museum of Darkness had burned down some time ago. Granted, the official effort to preserve the artifacts of the darkness for analysis have long since been defunct. But the loss should have been reported, nonetheless. 
Well, I remember that most of us woke up in the woods just outside of town. We were all dressed in uh, funny clothes, long and ceremonial-like. And we were all wearing this funny jewelry made from fish bones. My God, man, what is that sound? I don't want to know, Mr. Bowley. July 7. I was just whisked out of Mr. Renard's residence, following a rather odd disturbance. A wild peal of wind followed by what might have been footfalls upon the roof directly over our heads. The electricity promptly cut out, and I was forced to suspend the interview. I'll try to resume the effort tomorrow, though I have a feeling Mr. Renard may be indisposed. I wanted to check out a few hunches before we made for the airport, but the nearest uplink center was miles away. Romy was still in her room when I walked outside. I felt gray, washed out, despite the obnoxiously bright morning. I just received what I'd always wanted, but the world hadn't changed much for the fact. Seeing Romy again was like wanting to be an astronaut. You knew you'd never get to be one, but it gave you a direction to hope in. That's not to say I wasn't happy to see her, only that the reunion left me without hope. The world was more solid and bleak than ever before. Everything was accounted for. The mystery of my vanished sister was solved and we were at last together in the same ragged box of a world. I'd spent the night looking through some of the type reports from the Discovery team. Nothing that blew my hair back. But I had a feeling the next section of audio would prove interesting. Romy passed out midway through, and I wanted to wait until she could listen along. Going through the Discovery materials, I realized I needed to shake my normal way of approaching the case. This wasn't a hunt. At least, not yet. I wasn't used to having so much information to sort through. Exopaths were complex, sure, but the clues to what they were up to and how to stop them were all meat. This stuff on marrows, it was finger food, nothing substantial. Romy emerged from her room, coffee mug in hand, wincing at the sun. Never flown in a Zeppelin before. You? How do you think I made it to and from Italy for my internship at Salence? <laughs> Night stalker extraordinaire you might be, brother of mine. <laughs> but you're no Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> it was the first time I'd heard her laugh since we were separated. Coffee? Sure. I need all the help I can get staying awake. I smirked at her, eyebrows raised. Smartass. Maybe, just maybe, with both of us on the case, we'll add up to one very sage Watson. The cab dropped us off at Blackley Airport around 10 a.m., the skies expressing darkness and light in nearly equal measure. A sizable congregate of dark, swollen clouds elbowed into an otherwise bright day, the sun bleeding across their leading edge. 
The sight shifted the scene away from reality, a world momentarily proving paradoxical, or at least mildly perplexed. A cluster of black zeppelins, bridging the two conflicted sides of the sky, slowly glided away from us. Zeppelins always looked too organic for my liking, like floating larvae of some kind, pulsing their way through the air, looking for somewhere to finish their transformation. Romy looked on blithely, wrapped in a long, dark cloak straight out of a gothic novel. Her pale face floated in the silken darkness of her long black hair and high collar. It suited her. The hangar was massive, a rectangular world filled with giant floating pupas. There must have been nearly a dozen of the things under the roof, people like masses of ants moving about their cables where they were anchored to the floor. I watched the sides of the zeppelin ripple with breath, its pneumatic lungs filling it fat and weightless. It was larger than I thought, too, blotting out the world as we drew closer. Romy caught me gawking, and I could feel my eyes wanting to twitch at the prospect of lifting off. It's like taking a carnival ride across the world, all weightless and fluffy. You might even like it. Until it erupts and falls like a bloated meteor to the ground. As a rule, I never walk into a place I can't just as easily walk out of. That credo usually means no planes, no boats. Sure, I'd broken my oath on occasion. I needed to board a boat now and then, but I'd never step foot on anything that could fly. (sighs) So my brother is a pessimist, is he? She lit up a cigarette and waved it at the bulging black balloon. You'd be surprised how far aeronautics has come since the Hindenburg. They don't blow up anymore. Hmm, Unless someone blows them up. Huh, that's encouraging. The lighting was choppy and dim in places making the passing crowds more ominous than just a patchwork of unfamiliar faces. I wondered if it might have made a good dream, or maybe even a nightmare. Couldn't help but to size up the people around us, though. Crowds were like killing pools to exopaths. It was hard not to feel vulnerable. My eye ticks were the first to the party, my want to pull at them almost overwhelming. In situations like this, I'd flex different muscles as hard as I could, as frequently as I could, trying to blend the stress into my straining arms or back. I felt my fingers disappearing into fists, and my skin felt like it was under a heat lamp. The next tick was easier to manage, whistling. I cobbled it into a pleasant tune and felt a bit better. I wasn't used to all the crowds. What I did, I did on my own terms, at my own pace, and alone. This was definitely not going to be a vacation. Despite her assurances, Romy didn't look exactly comfortable either. She searched the floor a lot, like she dropped something. Her hands were balled into fists as well. You okay? Her eyebrows shot up, like I'd caught her at something. Yeah, 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 I'm, I'm good. She nodded toward the throngs milling about, waiting to board. Just, uh, crowds. Security was running frisks at the boarding ramp to the Zeppelin. And while we had government credentials to keep their hands off whatever we had, they still wanted eyes on what we were packing. 
I offered a weapons permit in lieu of cracking open my case, which might have raised eyebrows higher than I would have liked. To my surprise, Romy slipped a sheathed dagger from the folds of her cloak, smirking at me as she held it out for the guard. It was big, cumbersome looking, and flourished with all kinds of weird designs. The metal of the pommel looked tarnished, the haft substantial. As my sister replaced it beneath her cloak, she flipped it around her hand before it disappeared into darkness. Just what the hell had she learned at that lab of hers? Once we got through the line and onto the airship, the crowds thinned to a few persons wandering the promenade that wrapped around the inside of the thing, banks of windows looking out from all directions. My ticks fell back into line as I looked around. The inside oozed class, having all the retro swank of an old-fashioned hotel, right down to the art deco of its brass finishings. The aesthetic seemed to work well enough with the hefty pneumatics that bulged from the walls and lengths of tuber and pipe. Clientele was a mixed bag, though. It wasn't income or even class that set them apart, as much as it was religion. The passengers had been divided, almost as if by a giant straight edge, into different denominations of this or that cult or cabal. There were quite a few heckins on board. Their get-ups were straight out of Halloween. Long, sweeping capes and tall, polished scepters. Spooky masks. I wasn't up on their beliefs, as they had more than a few, from what I've heard. But I always liked it when they were around. They added to the strangeness of things wherever they went. And to an old escapist like me, they were a welcome sight. It made sense that there'd be so many of them, given that we'd be stopping by Nighthead on our way through to Leland. And that went double for the Noxite, standing rod rigid and aloof in the darkest corners of the room. They're all concealing shrouds, making them into black silken specters. A precept of their faith, philosophy, whatever you want to call it, nocturnalism, was taking root all over the place, practically dividing the country as cleanly as it split up the crowds of the big black blimp. City after city was falling to its sway, or rather, to the pressure its rich and powerful backers were keen to exert. Nighthead was the official home of the movement and had strong ties to a number of other post-Noctum religions and whatnot. A couple of the Noxite bunch looked like recent converts. Their umbricks, the ceremonial garb they wore to ensure light never touched their bare skin, was ill-fitting, and their sashes fell a little too long at the ankle. On the other side of the divide was a smattering of the so-called post-faithful, or the mourners of Jesus Christ made up from some branch of Christianity that broke off after the darkness. They had decreed God dead and now assumed that the devil was calling the shots. Now they were all about a second resurrection, when God would raise himself from the dead, or something like that. Myself, I'm a card-carrying anti-deist, but I've heard plenty of compelling arguments from both sides of the religious divide. Still, I remember the words of a certain exopath best of all spoken right after I'd asked him what God he wanted me to send him to. Faith is like a blind archer, he said, ever certain his aim is true, even though he'd never seen the target. Interesting sentiment, but I don't think the archer's blind. The problem is, there's no target. Hey. 
The Sleep-Wake Cycle is a Maltopia production. Today's episode was written by Mark Anzalone and performed by Kelly Bear and Mark Anzalone. The episode was edited by Walker Kornfeld. Sound production and editing was performed by Stephen Anzalone, and the Sleep-Wake Cycle theme song was written and performed by Sean Zeller. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Maltopia. That's M-A-E-L-T-O-P-I-A. And if you'd like to know more about the world of the sleep-wake cycle and contribute to its nightmarish expansion, visit us at www.patreon.com forward slash Maltopia, where you can gain access to all sorts of art, mythology, stories, and more. For more information about the sleep-wake cycle and the larger world of Maltopia, head over to Maltopia.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.